Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. Sorry this is a little bit late. It's a Tuesday, but it's not early in the morning on Tuesday, which is normally when the podcast goes out. Although, obviously, the week before last, we had a complete absence of a podcast. But anyway, we're here now. I've got to say thanks to all of you for the pretty overwhelming response to last week's episode with Seth Troxler, which was the most popular episode we've ever had in terms of first week downloads by quite a long way as well. So, I mean, I knew Seth is a big name. I knew he's popular. I know he's also a little bit controversial, which maybe helps those kinds of figures. But I thought it was a great episode in many respects. And obviously, quite a lot of you did too. So yeah, nice one for that. On the show this week, we have none other than Faulty DL. Now, this could be a Dubstep Wars episode, which we do occasionally with people who are involved in the early dubstep scene. I first got into contact with Drew Lussman as a result of the Dub War Night in New York that we discussed, as opposed to Dubstep Wars, the Dub War Night that we discussed with Dave Q, the promoter of that night, and also with Joe Nice. But... He is someone who is more associated with the post-dubstep era. So he doesn't carry the baggage of the dubstep wars, <laughs> that era. And we didn't really talk about dubstep at all in the conversation today. So that's fine. And that's appropriate that it's not a dubstep wars episode, which I think, um, yeah, those are definitely best reserved for people who are deep in the trenches, as it were. <laughs> But this was an interesting episode for me personally because I've known Drew obviously since then and I carry him as a friend, but we've never like sat down face to face for, you know, a couple of hours and dug into each other's backgrounds 
in the way that we do in the conversations today. So this is a great episode for me on a personal level. And I think you're going to enjoy it too because he's an interesting guy with an interesting story, lots of which I wasn't aware of. So yeah, this is a good episode, including some chat about Kanye West, which is topical. Um, I won't prejudge that or uh, tell you too much about it ahead of time. But um, yeah, okay, so you can support the show on Patreon if you're not already. In fact, you're definitely not already if you're listening to this version of the feed because there is a slightly different version for Patreon subscribers. Patreon.com slash official is the place to do it. There's a couple of different options, both of which are quite reasonably priced, I think, and there is a whole bunch of bonus content that goes up regularly, including bonus podcasts. So yeah, get over there and do that if you're feeling generous or if you're just feeling like you like what we're doing here and want to support us. So we would be extremely grateful if you did that. Extremely grateful. And it would help us keep the lights on, as it were, on the pods. Um, If you don't want to do that, if you can't do it, you can't afford it, that's also completely fine. Just hit the five-star button on whatever podcast platform you're listening to this on. That does help the show. Follow the Spotify playlist. Link in the show notes to that. Contains lots of Faulty DL music this week, of course, as well as all the previous episodes and previous music and stuff. Tons of stuff in there now. It's like five days. No, it's got to be more than that. There's a lot of music in there and a lot of episodes. So, yeah, do that. And then also join us in the Discord if you've got anything to say about the show. If you've got anything nice to say about the show. I mean, you can, of course, say nasty things too, but I may delete you from the server if you are too nasty. Constructive criticism is welcomed, of course, in the best spirit of the show. Right. Okay, let's just get into it. Without further delay, here is Faulty DL. Faulty DL, welcome to the show, Andrew Lussman or Drew Lussman. I wanted to ask, that's my first question. Why what's the um why why, why are you called Faulty DL? DL? Um, well, the DL is, is like pretty easy to decipher. That's just my initials, Drew Lustman. Um, sure. I like I had a AOL America Online. I don't know if you guys had that or not, but we had this AOL. You did have that. Okay, yeah, it's funny did, that yeah. that existed outside of America, but I guess that makes sense. But yeah, I had like a random screen name where I was Samurai DL when I was a kid. I thought I was so tough and cool. <laughs> and then, um, and then I saw. I, you know what it was? I saw Clockwork Orange at like way too young of an age. And there was something about that, like the way it was written with like Droogy and Drew, like this, this like the, the vernacular that he came up with in that, that like I wanted something to end with like a Y, like faulty, like some sort of dis- descriptive way for DL. And I literally just, it just came to me and I don't even spell it right. You know, I spell it without the U um, and uh, it just stuck. Yeah, it's just stupid. It's just like, I'm just so far into it, I can't get rid of it at this point. And then someone was like, was like, oh, that's like funky DL. And I was like, I didn't even know who that was at the time. But, you know, props, props to them. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I can identify with having a name which you're stuck with (laughs) and unable to change. Dude, I didn't. (laughs) Dude, it's so funny because I was like not a diving podcast. I was like, what does that even mean? And then I was like, oh, that's so, (laughs) that's what that means. He's just like trying to give himself like a leg up in the podcast game so people know what they're getting into. Um, Right. Lots of things to talk about. Uh, I'm going to start with the new album, which I've been listening to today and it's really good. I really like it. It's a stylistic departure. I didn't realize it's your ninth album. That is a commitment to the form. 
So with regards to the new one, I mean, you've always been like pretty varied in your output and you've never been afraid, I think, to uh, venture into new ground. But this one is definitely its own thing. So tell me how you kind of came round to the idea of doing a record like this, if, if I can put it like that. Yeah, for sure. And and just to a point you just made, I think one of the reasons why I at least appeared like I was adventurous was that I didn't, I don't come from a clubbing background and I didn't have a lot of experience going to clubs in the sense where like you might make a tune on a Thursday night, go play it somewhere on a Friday, get some feedback and then fix it on a Saturday. I didn't have that sort of like uh, that exercise to run my tracks through. So I was kind of making things in a little bit of an abstract space where I could maybe get away with some weirder, less conforming dance music early in the day or just stuff that didn't work as well because I didn't have anywhere to practice it or to like hear it out. But to the to the latter point, you know, I think as as producers, we're like always making music. So it's easy for us to connect the dots between like our last record, even if it was six years ago to the new one, because we know intimately all the unreleased music we've made in between and all the steps we've made. But the audience doesn't know that because they don't get to hear it all. They just hear sort of what gets released. Um, so like there's albums in between my last one and this one where I started working with my vocals. I started incorporating bass and guitar a little bit more. So it feels more gradual to me. But one of the main catalysts was working with Mickey Blanco over the last couple of years and working with a vocalist, thinking about pop structures, working with other collaborators, instrumentation, you know, honestly, working with a collaborator and just really considering someone else's point of view and ideas as a strength and not as a hindrance to your own stuff was like huge. And there's like loads of vocalists on my album as well that aren't me, even though I'm singing on most of the tracks. But uh, yeah, and a little bit also of that pandemic thing where it's like the clubs are shut, everyone's home. I went to my dad's house early in the pandemic and just like went into his basement and grabbed all my old guitars that he was holding for me. We I moved into a larger place early pandemic. So I had the studio space. So I brought them all down to New York and just started playing again and fell back in love with guitar and bass uh, and piano and started incorporating it. And I'm listening, I'm at home and I'm listening to like the Beach Boys and I'm listening to the Beatles and, you know, the Cure and all sorts of stuff. And I'm just like listening to rock and not dance music anymore. So it just, I'm kind of a creature of, I'm a little bit of a copycat in that I just like listen to things and then I just want to become part of that conversation. You know, it's it's a bunch of stuff gets thrown into the pot to, to come out with an album like this. And also, it's like this delusional aspect of being an artist where you're like, I'm just going to do this now and it's going to be dope and I'm going to be a pop star. You know, like you got to kind of believe your own your own stuff like that. And I just was like, yeah, I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to sing and do my Simon and Garfunkel and my talking right. heads and just put it out there. <laughs> totally alienate everyone that's ever liked my well, music. That's, that's, that's the problem, right? With... Um with changing things up like that. But I think, I don't know, I mean, I think, well, as I said before, I think your your music generally has been, uh, it's been hard to pin down stylistically. So I think probably the people that like your stuff are probably more amenable to this kind of shift than maybe certain other artists who've maybe been a bit more, uh, I'm not going to use the word, one-dimensional. Maybe it's a bit harsh on on those people. But I mean, yeah, I think mm. I think one is sort of rewarded and I've said this loads of times before on the show one is rewarded for sticking in one lane but it's kind of boring to do that right yeah I mean I used to get that question uh like if I had just kept making like two-step you know Mm. like would I be 
where would I be with that? I don't know. I mean, no one's, I don't know who's really doing that at the moment, but like, yeah, you're right. It is rewarded. And I might have a, a my, I think my DJ calendar might reflect that. Um, but I just, I just lose my mind if I do the same thing over and over again. So how is this record, like in, in terms of the actual making of it, the kind of technical side, and I suppose like working with people as well, how has that differed from previous albums? Yeah, I mean, I casted a wider net of collaborators um, and had the advantage of time on my side because um, I had made so much, I had so much music in the bank that I made with Mickey that was going to come out for a couple of years that I felt like I had time to, and it would be advantageous for me to let that stuff come out, get a little bit of attention from that, and then do my own album. So like timing was good. You know, like the, the, the DJ producer needs to sort of keep a steady flow of singles out there to keep the gigs going, unless you're that rare, rare person who can do like one single every 18 months. And it's just so killer that you're just, you're golden. Um, for me, it was always I needed to put a lot of stuff out there to keep going. Or, you know what, to be honest, I wouldn't know because that's just what I did. I wouldn't know what it would have been like if I had released less. Um, having time on my side was huge. And then sort of like, you know, I think some 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 musicians and producers get excited about like a new piece of gear they get. And then they'll just be able to like bury themselves in that. For me, it was like I'm going to acquire a new song form. I'm going to really think about like structure, like like verse, chorus, verse, bridge, all that type of stuff. And I started studying songs and I would throw them into into reason and I would like break up the sections and really study how, how a lot of these like great songwriters were were putting songs together. I don't think I paid too much attention to them in the end, but I like would come out to the studio, listen to a Beach Boys song and then just try and make a song like that all day long. And it would it would come out different, you know, and a lot of them didn't make the cut of the album, but uh instead of listening to dance music, I was listening to to rock and like uh hollow notes, you know. Right. Um so is that let me let me just ask you about that. Is that is that an approach that you've taken like down the years in terms of like getting direct inspiration in the studio like that because I, mean, I have to say that that does ring a bell with me actually that can be quite a uh, I mean it, it's it's I guess to the casual observer it seems like a sort of slight almost cheating but it can be in my experience extremely inspiring without necessarily having to be a, like you know you're not necessarily just like ripping off whatever you're listening to but having a direct influence on the day I found can be can be useful totally i i think i think it's probably more prevalent than we think i mean i don't know anyone that's creating music in a total vacuum um even even the real auteurs of our generation are definitely inspired by other things and yeah so with dance music i mean and back if you go back to 2009 i'm listening to burial i'm listening to box cutter i'm listening to your whole generation and i'm getting excited about what was becoming sort of post dubstep you know a couple years later i'm listening to mount kimby and james blake and i'm getting excited about that stuff you know the music i'm making isn't exactly a carbon copy but it's in the same same realm of that stuff and so on and so forth you know then i'm listening to rap and then i'm listening to all sorts of stuff so yeah i definitely get inspired by things and want to like and immerse myself in them and when i and, and this is what i know about myself and a friend of mine reminded me is that like when i feel like i have writer's block or whatever that is they just say like, oh, you got to just start listening to music again. And I'll realize, right, I haven't like just listened to music in weeks. You know, I've been doing other stuff. I've been watching TV. I've been working. I've been doing admin stuff and business stuff. Like listen to music. Listen, listen, listen. doesn't have to be new stuff. It's just like engage that part of your brain that just gets excited about music again. And then inspiration can come, hopefully, you know? Yeah, that's a really insightful 
comment actually because I feel um, I get into very similar states where you're kind of just chipping away and you can become like, you can get sort of tunnel vision I think quite easily and suddenly you've like uh, you're in this position where it's just like shit like what am I supposed to be doing and it's like yeah you can get so much out of just sitting back and like disengaging with what you're doing directly but and, and then just immersing yourself in what someone else has done <laughs> right and it's like totally. that can be just an unbelievably rewarding experience yeah totally i mean it's funny because i think uh especially as as i get older i think about not only do i need to continue to be productive but i need to do like all sorts of stuff to feel like i'm like growing as a human being and not just being like lazy like it's not enough for me just to make music and play video games anymore (laughs) you know i've got like a family and like other responsibilities and i want to like help people and be a member of society so there's like other stuff going on now um uh and and so to grow as a human being i think it's important to like take on more in a way yeah but the right stuff sure so getting into specifics with the various tracks on the on the album how did how did you do the collaborations? Was it all? I mean, well, I mean, actually, a question is: When did you make it? Was it is this a pandemic album, or when or was it made in a time or more recently where you could actually get in the studio with people? Yeah, no, it's all it's all remote except for the Mickey feature. We recorded that in person, um, uh, but yeah, it was all made in during the pandemic, like in the last starting, you know, March April of twenty twenty up until. Uh, the very beginning of this year. So about two years. Um, the first feature yeah. to come in was the Paul Banks one, which was so big. And that came in through uh, my manager at the time knew his manager. Um, and that was just like, yeah, let's just try it. Give me, you know, put a little SoundCloud list together, some tunes, send it over. And like literally from then to like having Paul's vocals in my inbox was like three weeks. It was just like magical. And I think that that happened so quickly. I just felt like, Oh, this is dope. This is going to work. Like I can like, people are like going to fuck with me. Like, this is great. I can, I can, uh, I can see this taking, taking shape. I have more confidence now to hit up other, other people. So like Juliana Barwick, like I hit her up and then I hit up Joe Goddard and then Brian DeGraw and Brad Laner, Brad Laner of medicine. You know, this dude has been making music since like the early eighties. We've made like five or six tracks together and he's supposedly mixing them now. I want to do a whole thing with him. But um, that was just so getting to work with some legends. And there's folks that I asked that said no as well. Um, like I, I ca- Again, I cast a kind of a wide net and some people said no. There's a lot of vocalists I wanted to work with that that, that passed. But um, I just, every time that happened. And were I, you, let me. Yeah. Sorry, I was just going to ask, were you sending out backing tracks when you were making these kind of approaches yeah i kind of was which and i I, the thing i try and do is put myself in the position of whoever's receiving it like how would i like to be approached you know is it respectful to be sent something that's already like 95 percent done like hey can you just sing on top of this or do you want to be more of a collaborative sense you know and i just feel it out and try and be um gentle and, and and inclusive as far as the collaboration process goes you know um with whatever they, whatever the, I'm just like, I, I'm hit, when I'm hitting up someone like Juliana Barwick for vocals, I'm kind of just excited to see whatever she would do, you know? And she ended up just sort of like, yeah, it's just like, she's so good. It's like, who am I to even tell her what to do? That type of stuff. Um, yeah. I, I'm always, I, I'm always like, uh, I kind of like err on that side. Right. So I'm like, I don't want to send stuff, which is 
like nearly finished but then i always think like when i send out my early demos i'm like are people going to think that this is like <laughs> good <laughs> like that i think this is like good. You know i mean i'm so yeah, proud yeah. about that and i always think like oh it's, it's a difficult yeah. balance to uh to get right it is but also like you know what it, it's I, I think when you're hitting up a real veteran they understand the whole process you know but one thing you got to understand about me hitting up people too is that i'm coming off the back of working with mickey for a couple of years where we were getting features from michael stipe from rem anoni kelsey lou devendra banhart yancey from cigaros um you know uh, uh the list goes on and so like these huge features coming in i you know sap a little bit of that energy from mickey and i feel like ooh, i can do that too you know, which was warranted or not. I just like took some of that confidence and was like, let me just go for it. You know, tell me about the process there then. So um, in terms of getting like, yeah, getting a Michael Stipe feature, like how does, how does that work? So, I mean, Mickey's like, uh, I, I, I joke, I want to, I want to be Mickey's biographer one day because like, they're just such a character and like, they're like, so Mickey goes to like a fashion show in New York, bumps into Michael Stipe, you know, they love each other. And, uh, and, and Mickey's just like, Hey, you know, working on some music, we should do something. And Michael's like, yeah, of course. Like same thing with Yancey <laughs> from Cigaros. Mickey was walking in the East village of Manhattan and literally bumped into Yancey. And then like the feature came out of that. Like, it's just, wow. they're kind of, they're just so magical in their, in their approach and how they talk to people. Um, you really feel when I'm talking to Mickey, I feel like I have 110% of their, their brain when they're looking at me and it's 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 kind of like uh it's mesmerizing in a way um but right. but so if if you want me to go into how the whole th- collaboration with mickey started i can i can give you the, the yeah 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 please do version yeah, of yeah. it all yeah. yeah i mean i i sent mickey a tune um maybe in 2015 16 and i remember getting an email like hey i don't have any space on my laptop can you like can you send it to my phone or something? And I sent it to their phone and then never heard back, whatever. But I was like, all right, cool. Like they were open cut to a couple years later. I send another email, um, with a track, uh, with a tune that's still unreleased called beautiful goodbye that I really like a lot. I hear right back from Mickey. This, so this is 2018, early 2018. I hear right back from Mickey saying, yo, what is this? And I'm just like, oh, this is just a thing I made. I think it's kind of dope. Do you like it? You can have it. And they're like, you know what? You just hit me up at this time. Where, and we didn't know each other. They're like, you just hit me up at this time where I'm starting to think about my next album. Uh, I'm going to be in New York. Would you Would you want to work on some music together? And I was like, sure. Um, and while you're at it, here's this album I made. So the, I made a follow-up to Heaven is for Quitters. Uh, in 2017, I made an album called Cruisin' USA. And that had some vocals on it of me. I sent it to Mickey and I said, you know what? I'm not ready to do another album. Why don't you cherry pick some tunes from this too that you'd like and they're like oh dude i want half of this they loved it and that became the backbone of the ep and the album i did for mickey like a lot of the tracks on their album came from my cruise in usa album um so right so cut to hey i'm gonna be in new york let's meet up we both were managed by folks at k7 at the time and so they were working together being like yo we got to get them together in the studio this sounds really fun they help facilitate that. Mickey comes over. We have a couple beers at my place and we are just getting along so well. We have so much in common from like our upbringings culturally to just like what we're into, music we like. We had these phone calls in the beginning where Mickey would be like, you know what? I don't want to just rap. And I would be like, I don't want to just make dance music. And I'm like, let's make show tunes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Let's make like broad- <laughs> Broadway musical music. Like, what do we have to lose? Like, let's just let's just go there. Let's be these versions of ourselves we want to be. And we and we like 
the one rule we had, which was totally unspoken, was just that let's make whatever we want and not care about what anyone thinks about it. And of course, that's like all fine and dandy until you actually start to think about how it will get received. But worry about that after it's made, you know, like worry about that when you're about to release it. But when you're making the music, just like go there and be emotional and like put on different hats. And so that's how we make songs like uh, Patriarchy Ain't the End of Me, which sounds like an off-Broadway hit, you know, and Ketamine, which sounds like a song that could be played in a strip club and French Lessons, which is like a sort of a new wave, nouveau, like beachy summer, warm blanket vibe. Um, You know, we kind of went all over the place. But uh, yeah, so no one's touring. It's pandemic. Mickey's in New York every couple of months and we're just working, working, working. Mickey flies me to Lisbon. Uh, it, yeah, in 2019, Mickey flies me to Lisbon to work with them for a week. Then they fly me to London to shoot a thing. Then they fly me to Los Angeles. Like, it was just dope, you know? Oh, and then at the end of 2018, Mickey and I are both in Chicago working for Kanye West. Oh, yeah? Because Mickey's Mickey's writing, yeah, Mickey's writing raps for Kanye, playing him my tunes, and Kanye's like, get this, get out here. So I'm in Chicago for a long weekend, hanging out in the Trump Hotel with uh, <laughs> no the penthouse of the Trump Hotel listening to Kanye tell me how much he loves my drums. No shit. And uh, he's freestyling over... Yeah, he freestyled on like six of my beats. I have videos of it. That's like the greatest things I've ever owned. Um, and there's the okay. Make America Great Again hat on the uh, on the countertop. <laughs> right. Okay, so, so um, hang on a sec. Hang on a sec. Hang on a sec. Yeah, what yeah, is, yeah. So what is, what yeah. is he like? It, dude, it was so dope. I mean, he was so nice. He was so funny. He was really chill. He was taking a meeting with the heads of Pornhub because he was helping them redesign their website or something. <laughs> and I walk in and I see this guy, Evan, who is one of the one half of Rat Tat Tat, who I've been a huge fan of forever. And he's like a Brooklyn guy. So I'm like, oh, cool. There's like other people in here I kind of know. And and he's yeah, he's so sweet. I mean, you know, there's no cameras on or anything. He says the occasional wild thing. He took like a phone call from Kim at one point on speakerphone and I like heard her voice. That was <laughs> oh, wild. Shit. Okay. Oh, and he'd like, dude, he'd like talk about something. And then the next day it would be a TMZ headline. I was like 12 hours ahead of the news cycle of his life. It was wild. Wow. But, um, but he did say things about my music where I was like, oh, he really listened. Uh huh. Like he was explaining how my, my music made him feel. And I was like, oh, he's, he actually like listened to it. And that was amazing. And he changed the way I think of executive producing because, you know, he wasn't yay at the moment, wasn't touching keyboards and npcs he was more just like telling people kind of what he wanted but when someone like him says to you drew make this more uplifting make this more spiritual you feel like you have been given the license to do that it's like it's incredible and then all of a sudden i feel like i can do that and to me that's executive producing that's like getting in someone's head and empowering them that's so from our visit i only have positive things to say Obviously, the dude has totally spiraled out, and it's crazy. Um, well, okay, so I mean, but, that's, uh, and that's, then uh, for, that's a that's yeah. sort of something I want to cover as well. But just just sticking on this, like the the music side from from my moment, like it's a really interesting concept that kind of quote quote unquote executive production kind of role because it's so easy to be sort of cynical mm-hmm. about it. But and I've never yeah. seen, I've never witnessed this being like done in a you know in, in a what i perceive to be a good way mm-hmm. or a kind of con, you know constructive mm-hmm. kind of a way but i mean the way you make it sound it's like I mean, I, I mean i suppose 
a kind of the, the sort of quite unquote creative director role, right? I think maybe it make, makes a bit more sense to me in my head about the actual role. I mean, executive producer sounds like some guy who's, ma- who's raising money to make a movie. <laughs> but um, <laughs> Right, right, sure. But I guess... I, I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to figure this out in my head, right? I, I guess, it, I guess, when it's done well, it must add a lot of value. Well, dude, no, you, you're you're totally right. It's a weird gray spot. It's probably similar between film and music and a lot of arts. And it's like I've seen folks that literally just like I've seen managers get an executive producing credit on an album, and maybe there's some very technical. If you get that level, that means you have two points on the album or whatever. Like, there's probably some major label like jargon like you know uh chart where you can figure out that type of stuff my only understanding of executive producer as far as what i've done is that i'm also making the music you know so it's a much more and mickey just started calling me that mickey would introduce me like hey this is my executive producer faulty deal i'd be like all right i guess that's what i am you know uh i you know and i just ran with it it's like but i'm also just the producer of all the music um yeah, so it's it's different from different people, but you know, if we want to talk about just how influential it is, like just a guy like Ye saying "do this" is probably just as powerful as someone actually making it in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's very. Um, I mean, I mean, you're right. You're right. It's certainly a, a it's like a significant con- contribution. I guess it's like I'm trying mm-hmm. to think of an analogy in film. Like, is it sort of like a director and a cinematographer kind of? relationship maybe i was i'm not sure if i'm reaching there a little yeah. bit too much but yeah okay so uh <laughs> wow i didn't i didn't think we'd be talking i didn't think we'd so, be talking about Kanye so then for this, the next like but i mean fair enough but go on, yeah go on dude i mean i of course i want to talk about it because none of the music ever came out so it's like i can't be like oh here's the credit you know what i mean although there were some leaks online but 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 for the next like two months after i met him I'm texting almost daily with Kanye. He's sending me voice notes and I'm putting them over beats and sending them back. And he's saying, okay, send the drums of this to this person. Send instrumental to Sci-Hi the Prince, you know, his guy who writes all his, his raps and stuff. Like, I'm in the fold. And for a good month there, I'm like, my heart is like out of my chest. And I'm like talking to my girlfriend. I'm like, I'm producing for Kanye and Mickey. This is my life now. And I just thought it was all just gonna like rocket ship out of there. And it was dope though. Like, I, I love it. You know, oh, here's one thing that happened that was crazy. I'm home one day before it starts. I know Mickey is writing raps for Kanye, and I see this TMZ headline with Kanye. He's doing something crazy. I looked at Carmen, I go, I'm gonna work with Kanye. I say, Watch this. I'm gonna end up, I'm gonna meet this guy and I'm gonna work with him. And she's like, All right, whatever. Um, and then like two weeks later, I did. And I'm not like, uh, I'm really not a, speak it into existence type of person i think that i hate that sort of like spiritual whatever thing but like i literally think i made that happen that night (laughs) (laughs) okay i don't know how we got onto this how do we get onto this well we're talking about how mickey and i you know got together in our collaboration and um so like yeah i'm in mickey's orbit and it's a bit it's a bit um it's just way outside of my nerdy hunched over my computer making dance music life. And I feel so blessed and like happy to like be having new experiences and flying around and and collaborating and making stuff. It all just makes me feel, I don't know, like I can, like I can, I can try something new. Like, you know, that first time you get a big gig, you know, first time you maybe play Bergheim or something like that, you just feel like you level up. You feel like, oh, I can do this other thing now. It's like, it's, it's, 
it would be amazing if we could give ourselves this power as producers without having to do these things. So we could just give our, because I think, I'll speak for myself. You tell me if you can relate to this. I want people to like me. I want people to love me. That's probably partly why I'm making music. I want like people to know me. I want them to hear my music and feel good about it. Um, And it's a very outward like expression of like my personality, the music that I make. It's, it's way more, it's easier for me to do that than to speak directly to someone and say, Hey, do you like me? (laughs) You know, it's a little bit of a, I'm, I'm self-conscious. I'm like, I'm, you know, I, uh, I'm all those things. Um, but I think it's important to like, to, it would be, it would be great if we could self-soothe ourselves without having to jump through too many fiery, um, rings of death. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) No, I mean, you're absolutely right. I think anyone who does anything creative and, and takes the trouble to put it out into the world, like there is ego, like just without question involved in every one of those decisions. Yeah. Right. And it's, yeah, you're looking for kind of validation. You're looking for approval when you, release something you know when you when you show it to people because that's what you're doing you made you made something and you're showing it to people and you want them to like it i mean there's there's no i mean loads of people would would deny that that's what they're doing but i mean it's intrinsic in the process i would i would argue and dude in the beginning in the beginning you're you know like you're making music you're a new face opportunities are coming to you it's incredible you're innocent you're you're loving it if you stick around long enough the business will show you a side of yourself, a competitive side of yourself that you you thought might have been dormant or not going to rear its head. And it's not always ugly, but like when you meet someone who's got that mile long DJ list who's been doing it for a while, like, yo, they've stepped on a neck or two probably to get there. <laughs> <laughs> I got to say, it might have been subtle. It might not have been that bad, but like, you know, and it's uh, like, you got to. It's kind of like, it, yeah, you need to be competitive. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've talked about this before on the show and uh, it took me a long time to be able to be happy for other people's creative success. And, like, it really did. And <laughs> sure, that's a very honest thing to say. You know, when when, when I yeah. heard music that I, new music that I liked, it really, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I did not react well to it for a, for a, for a long time. And it's relatively recently that I've been able to step back and say, wow, this person made something great, you know? And, but, and, but, and, but the competition or the competitive aspect of that, I really found motivating for quite a while. I mean, it's quite a negative <laughs> motivation, right? But I really did find it motivating and I found it, a, you know, a, a way of kind of like, you know, geeing myself up to, you know, to, to get my, get the best work out of myself. A hundred percent, a hundred percent, especially with like people in your generation. I remember like, gr- like when I started with floating points, I think we would send each other stuff and get each other like jazzed up, like, Oh, check what I did. Oh, check what I did. And in, but in the beginning I was, I was actually really psyched for other people. Like there was that, that there's a great sort of like, I think that's when a scene is its best when there's a bunch of producers that are like sending each other stuff and trying to like egg each other on to make better stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And it, but it, and what happens, like you said, like what normally happens is that it starts off like in a really kind of healthy, like, yeah, we're all in this together. We're going to make it. And mm-hmm. and then there's a degree of success and a degree of attention and it all gets a little bit fraught, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's certainly my, totally. my experience of it anyway. So, Dude, I, uh, that's that's very true. That's totally it. That's absolutely it, man. Yeah. 
That's, I don't know what else sure. to say on it. <laughs> sure. Well, let me, I mean, let's, in that case, like go, like step back and go, but kind of back to the start. Because, I mean, you mentioned like, you know, listening to people like Box Carter and that's how we first got into contact, wasn't it? Um, mm-hmm. So l- tell me yeah. about your way in to like, you know, doing this seriously. So like, what, did you grow up in New York? No, I grew up in New Haven, uh, Connecticut, which is about mm, under two hours outside of New York, right between New York and Boston, right in the middle. And what was your kind of musical sort of upbringing? It was um, always playing instruments. My folks just like figured out that that was something that I gravitated towards. So there was always instruments in the house and my and my and my mom playing Carly Simon nonstop and my dad playing Frank Zappa on vinyl nonstop. And that was like these two sort of That's musical good, giants. Good combo. Yeah, it was cool, man. I'm getting like I'm getting like beautiful melody from Carly and like intricate musicianship from Frank. It's kind of incredible. Um, and in New Haven, there's uh, there's a couple things that really came out of there. Like there's a lot of good rap, like EPMDs from the area, and then also like there's a hardcore punk scene that really took took place in New Haven. And there's spots like Toad's Place. This uh, this musical venue it was actually owned by the father of a friend of mine and uh or uncle of a friend of mine and uh it, it's great because you get these big bands playing new york on a saturday and then the following friday on in boston or something like that so they'd get this midweek gig at a 300 capacity place like toad's place on like a wednesday i'd go see like the entire wu-tang clan on a wednesday or the entire, you know, Parliament Funkadelic on a Wednesday, uh, or, 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 you know, whatever band that's on tour. So like, and it was cool and it, it was a, it was a really well-known venue and I knew all the people that worked there and they would like, they would just let me in for free. I'd go down, I'd go backstage, I'd sit up upstairs. They'd let me in before I was 21 and they would just put me in a section where I could just hang out where there was no booze or anything. Like it was a small enough town where I knew the infrastructure of the, the music scene. Um, just by going out. And I guess I always had, you know how, I mean, Paul, you probably received uh, a few demos from me back in the day where I just was like, yo, what's up? I'm Drew. Here's my tunes. Want to sign them? You know, like I had this yeah. like <laughs> extrovert. Yeah. I had this like, like I didn't really care. I just was like, I would throw it out there. And I think I had that energy as a kid too at these venues. And they're like, all right, this kid thinks he belongs here. Let's let him in, you know? And sometimes you end up in the deep end. Sometimes you end up a little bit out of yeah. your uh, your depth. <laughs> And you can get in some trouble, but, um, but I just like, I don't know. I just, I just, I, I, I allowed myself to, or felt like I could just like sort of sneak into these places and just, you know, I was also a wallflower too. I was pretty shy. I wasn't just this confident kid walking in, but I just would like kind of come in and there I was <laughs> like in the corner of every shot, just like standing there. Um, so was it, um, I mean, I guess that's a kid's curiosity, right? But I, I mean, like, do you, is there a, a kind of a key, was there a key act or a key kind of moment or something that you could kind of put your finger on that kind of led you to like seeking out that kind of nightlife? Um, yeah, I I, uh, I had a couple of friends and, you know, when you got those friends in high school that are older than you and they're just like rapidly introducing you to new things. Yeah. Sometimes it's like cigarettes <laughs> you know, or whatever. <laughs> weed uh but i had like i had a couple friends that were like already listening to aphex twin and um and like other other uh 
uh, DJ Shadow. DJ Shadow was huge for us too. You know, like introducing when that album came out, like everyone was listening to that. I got I got exposed to a lot in high school, um, and 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 that stuff made me want to just figure out. Like I would listen to DJ Shadow and go, "How is this dude playing these drums?" You know, I had no yeah. frame of reference for production or anything. I'm just like, this dude is playing drums. Like they're all chopped up and crazy. Like how is he doing that? So, uh, and then you go from that to like square pusher and I'm like, this dude's playing these drums. (laughs) (laughs) Um, like I just, I didn't understand how things were made. So I started this deep fascination with like wanting to dissect this music. Um, and, um, and I, and I figured out that like music was something I could talk about confidently and people would sort of listen to me. You know, I, I kind of think I have one of those voices that in most situations I get talked over <laughs> or this is my own perception of myself, at least, right. which is probably not accurate. But, you know, when you find that thing in, in high school that you're like confident about and you feel like you can just like all of a sudden come from a place of like, oh, this is something I learned that my parents didn't teach me that like I'm becoming an expert on on my own volition. I need to show people that I can do this. And that was that was music for me. Um, I really took that on and, and, and also, uh, in high school, so I'd go to high school in the morning, I would get all my classes in between first period and like lunchtime. I'd go home for an hour, get stoned, then drive across town to music school. And I would do music school from 1 PM to 5 PM. So I went to two high schools. I had this huge workload. It was crazy and it was not healthy after a while. I did it for a couple of years though, but I went to high school and then I went to music school and I was really getting thrown in with a lot of arty kids over there as well. And that was awesome. That was dope. That was like one of my teachers at the time was this guy uh, named Padma who's in this group called Clogs who like now I have this deep appreciation for as an adult for the music he was making back then. But like there was some cool experimental stuff being thrown at me at like 16 by these teachers who saw that I w- had the capacity for at least interest in that stuff. What were you studying? Steve uh, Steve Reich came and taught a class. No there. shit, really? Wow. Okay. Cool. So, 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 yeah, so, dude, I met Steve Reich at like 16. Well, that's That's extremely cool. Um, what were you learning yeah. generally speaking though at, at music school? Like what, what uh, classes were you, were you taking there? Yeah, I was playing, um, you know, it's still kind of old school and classical bass. So I was playing upright bass. So I was in, oh, okay. I was in small chamber. Yeah. Small, small chamber orchestras and then larger orchestras. I was in a klezmer group. <laughs> I was in um, all sorts of theory and stuff too i get i got to play electric bass as well but i was mostly playing upright bass there Um, okay so let me ask you then the theory question so (laughs) i've got into this with a couple of people most notably on the mj cole episodes and we Mm. were trying to figure out uh how important or not like classical theory is for making electronic stuff so where, where do you come down on that little debate i think um to borrow a quote from someone that I probably shouldn't be able to quote, Miles Davis, he's kind of like, you know, you learn all, and I'm just going to bastardize it, but it's like you learn all this theory and then you got to play like you forgot it all. So you internalize all these things, you know, and basically, hopefully what what you're doing is you're just training your ear to hear intervals and, and harmonies and melodies and all sorts of stuff and also and also um, and just rhythmic patterns. So like you're taking that all in and you're learning it and that's great. And then it just becomes these different arrows in, you know, in, in your, in your, uh, what's that called? Is that a quiver where you keep your arrows? I don't know. 
Yeah, yeah, Clippy, yeah, right. Um, <laughs> Something like yeah. that. Um, and then you get to pull them out later on in life, and you kind of understand it. I couldn't tell you what the circle of fifths is anymore, but I understood how it worked at one point, and I could read music, and I got that I could play this minor chord over this major, you know, or minor melody over this major chord, and it would make sense because of this. Um, but it's more like just did it makes does it make sense to your ear, you know? Um, and I did Suzuki method at a very young age, which is all about ear training, intervals and, right, and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, okay. Can you explain explain Suzuki method? Because I remember hearing that a lot at the time when I was a kid and learning this stuff, but I never actually yeah. did it. So what is the Suzuki, Suzuki method? Um, I, you know, I, 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 there's like, you probably would learn more just by Googling it. But I do remember that I, I did it on the instrument I learned Suzuki on was flute as a kid. So imagine how embarrassed I was playing flute as a kid. <laughs> uh, that's probably part of the part of why I wanted to get into like guitar and do something a bit cooler. Um, but now here I am listening to Yusef, Yusef Latif and Rashawn Roland Kirk, and I'm playing flute again, and I love it. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm looking at it right now in my studio. I've got it right over here. But Suzuki method is 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 like I said, it's really it's really about ear training, and you're reading music and you're writing music but you're listening to intervals. And, and for me, it was all about listening to my teacher play something and then mimicking it back, not even looking at her finger positions or anything, just engaging my ear more than anything. And it felt, it felt really like, um, kind of carnal in a way, like, like, like it feels like innate, like I'm using something that I had. I don't need to learn something else. I've been given these ears so I'm using them. I'm not like learning how to read another language, so to speak. I'm just like uh, working out the muscles in my ears. Um, and that was huge. Like that'll, that, that's always, I can hear, you know, so let's say I've got Mickey here recording a verse. I'll be like, try this interval, try this harmony, something like that. Cause I, and I think that all goes back to that. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. interesting. I mean, it does sound like a, a, a better way of doing it, a sort of more intuitive way of doing it than what I experienced which is much more of a kind of mm. I kind of kind of wrote old-fashioned uh way which I didn't find particularly engaging to be honest but okay so you were you were yeah telling me about your that your musical upbringing so you were going to this dual well you're in this kind of dual high school situation and going to live events yeah like I mean and you've already said that you don't really have an electronic kind of rave club background. So how did this all kind of coalesce into making electronic music then eventually? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it goes from like DJ Shadow to Square Pusher to just being introduced to new music. I'm still not quite making it yet. But another big thing that happened to me at 17 was I got sober at the time. I was like an all messed up kid. So now I'm like, I went to rehab and detox and AA for like a number of years. I am like fully doing the soap really sobriety well. thing. Yeah, it's 17 years old. I'm fully in that, hanging out with people in their 30s in AA. <laughs> and uh, wow. And so, okay. but now I'm getting real focused because I'm not fucking around anymore. And I'm also, after I graduate high school, it's like, look, if I go to college, I might kill myself. Like I need to like stay home, you know, stay sober, get a good job and just, you know, New Haven's a pretty good place to be. Um, so while I'm home in that first year, I'm working these, like, you know, these jobs where I'm making hummus, where I'm like washing dishes in a restaurant, where I'm teaching preschool, where I'm working construction, like all over the place. 
nothing is sticking. Let me, so can I can I stop? Let yeah. me stop you there. Yeah. Can I can I ask you a question about uh, the period before you had to get sober? Yeah. Um, was that linked to going out to music events, or was it just a kind of I'm I'm you know a young kid and just a bit out of control with intake? Like, tell me about it. Yeah, I mean, I think like I definitely discovered that any drug or alcohol is a good is a good social lubricant at an early age that like if i'm out i could if i could be stoned i'd feel a little bit more like which is so weird it's like why am i out then it's like i'm here but i don't want my mind to be here (laughs) it doesn't really make sense when you look at it on paper but i think curiosity got my foot in the door with drugs and then yeah something i'm predisposed to or just you know messing around with like you know, opiates and things that are addictive, it it is just going to snowball and you're going to get out of control. And when you're young and you don't understand what addiction is, you just think you could just stop whenever. And so then, you know, when I'm doing Oxycontin every day for like a year and then I decide to stop and then I'm violently sick, you know, because I'm totally caught out on opiates. It's like, what have I done to myself? Um, yeah. And, and so another thing, nice experience. Yeah. Not a good one at like 17 or 16 years old or any age. But, you know, another thing about me is like in school when, when like spring break would come around, my mom would be like, all right, what do you want to do? I'd be like, I just want to sit here and watch TV for two weeks. She's like, okay. Like I'm, I'm a real homebody introvert. I've been this way my entire life. So I actually love the pandemic for that. But like, my friends were like, oh, we're going to go to camp or we're going to go do this thing or we're taking a trip here or whatever. And I'm just like, cool, have fun. See you back in school. Like, I don't want to go anywhere. I want to sit at home, you know? And then I think that makes me also predisposed to enjoying something like weed, which like gives you a little bit of a social anxiety. So if you want to stay home, it's like an excellent one. Um, right. Or but oxycontin uh, as well. Yeah, that one as well. You can't get off the couch on that one. Um <laughs> But, uh, yeah, man, just so out of control and like, you know, kids have like, uh, kids break their arms and they get a Percocet prescription and now I'm at school and I'm hustling them for their Percocets. I'm like, yo, let me buy your Percocets. Like, I'm just turning into this, like, this trash can of, of, of pill abuse at like 15, 16 years old. It's wild. Um, I'm so grateful I got that out of my system then. I like literally haven't done a hard drug in 20 some odd years now. And it's just like, I just, I'm so glad I knew that about myself. I have no interest in it now. I've now spent, there's been more time since I've done the hard drugs than, what should I, how do I say this? Over half my life off of those things. So it's like, I don't, it's like not even yeah, a memory. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and then so, so right. So now that I'm sober, I'm pretty focused. You know, you take all this energy that I'm throwing into, to, to, to escaping into something you know, I get this like cheap pair of Polk um, reference speakers for like 150 bucks. And now I'm really, okay, how is Square Pusher making these drums? So I'm just putting putting in a kick drum and I'm just like repeating it. And that's like, I'm like, all right, cool. That's how you do that, uh, that, that little like granular synthesis thing, you know, real slow style. I love that I learned how to chop up breaks in just like the worst way possible hand by hand, you know, because it gives you an appreciation for like all that stuff. Um, yeah. So when my friends go to school, I'm now just working in New Haven. I'm sober and I'm listening to music all day long. And, uh, and yeah, at night I'm starting to spend all my free time making music and it becomes, 
I didn't know it, but so did you? Did you catch the production bug? I mean, I certainly did. At that, that similar kind of age, it just kind of like it was almost like. Well, I mean, it's kind of almost an analogous to a to a video game. Actually, I think um, just getting kind of grabbed by it and then just like getting pulled in in a way which you just kind of it just takes you oh dude i make after like after like the third song i made i'm walking around saying telling people i'm a producer <laughs> like i'm like yo i'm a yeah what's up i'm a record producer <laughs> go to an aa meeting drive some like 50 year old alcoholic back to his like halfway house and i'm like yo you want to hear some beats i made today he's like okay because uh, <laughs> at like 18 i've already been sober for like a year and a bit or whatever so I'm like in that role where I'm like helping, I'm like sponsoring people that are like twice my age and I'm help, but I'm just like, yo, check out this music I made. <laughs> um, same energy as those demos I sent you, Paul. Um, but, uh, yeah. Uh, so yes, I definitely caught the bug and it was like, all right, cool. I'm just going to do this, you know? And it's kind of that 10,000 hours thing, right? You just keep, keep doing it and you just slowly get better. I don't want to skip too far ahead, but like, uh, but like the main points are that I eventually come to New York because my mom says, you know, New Haven's a bit small for you. If you're going to do music, why don't you go to New York, get residency there? Then you can go to City College. You can go to a sonic arts program. You can like. So hang on a sec. Hang on a sec. Hang on a sec. Yeah. What, what year yeah. did you go to? What year was going to move to New York? It was uh, 2006. Uh, yeah. 2006. Okay. Right. Yeah. So about about the same kind of time that we first came across each other. I, I met you at Dub War so, in like 09, I think, 08, 09. Yeah, but we definitely had uh, conversed before that, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, 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 exactly. Okay, so I'm going to say that. Yeah. Now, that we're, now, now, that we're, now that we're on to that night at Dub War, yeah. uh, I, did you listen to the episode I did with um, with Dave? Yeah, for sure. Was I right about <laughs> us not enjoying the uh jru bit did i did i remember did i remember wait, that correctly was not, it not you enjoying i was which, standing with wait not when enjoying which? turned up when oh, the damages turned up. <laughs> that's so funny dude i definitely enjoyed that but you know i mean it was a curveball for sure wait that was that night that's right i'm that was. sure i'm sure i've i'm at, no i'm a hundred percent sure that me and you like for really? uh, not not the whole thing, not the whole yeah. thing, but like for a cup for a couple of minutes, we That's were stood so at the back looking at looking at each other, going, "Is this? Should it really be about this? This is supposed to be a new music <laughs> night." I'm sure it was you, but may, right, may, maybe I'll give it, it to wasn't you. you. I may I, I might have that wrong, but I mean, no, that, that's, that's fine. Just, it like, like kind of burned into my memory that it was. But you, I'll tell you this: maybe, maybe do, I'm wrong. Do you remember? I Ken? don't remember a lot from uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. From Ken Sackle. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, right. Ken, yeah. And he was the he was the videographer, right? So there is video online of me losing my shit in the front row when Jeru was rapping. So I will I will pull for that. Uh, to save my sure. to save my reputation here, right? Yeah, no, it's possible that you you, you kind of <laughs> listened to me bitching about it and then went and enjoyed yourself at the front. That that also may have happened. That uh, is completely possible, dude. You have to understand, I was still young too. Even then, I was like twenty four, twenty five, and I kind of feel a little bit out of my depth because now I'm going to a club night that like none of my friends are bringing me to. I discovered Dub War and I started going. So really? this is like my thing. Wow. I'm trying to figure out how to be a part of this. So I feel. And and there was, you know, I, I come in at the tail end of the generation where where there's still a bit of a tough love from the older folks that are around where I just I just want to be cool, man. I just want to be cool. I just want these people to like me. You know what I mean? <laughs> and for the most part, I I got that. Uh-huh. Um, 
I definitely got a seat at the table, but I think I also was probably had some cringy interactions as well. <laughs> I mean, that's that's true for literally everyone. Yeah. But okay, so that's that's 2009. But you were saying you you turned up in New York in 2006. So like, tell me about moving there and kind of getting yeah. your feet under um, the table. I mean, it, it was were. brilliant. This was like one of the best things my mom ever did for me. She just saw it. She was like, if you stick around in New Haven, you're going to wash dishes forever. And, uh, and what are you going to do? You know, like I had this apartment where my rent was like 500 bucks a month. So I was like, I was living, but like, it just wasn't going to grow. So she kind of pushed me towards New York. And also we knew at this point that I was not a good student. So I applied a city college and it's like cheap. It's basically state school, although it's really good. Um, and I'm also working part-time as a substitute teacher at a, uh, at a school called Friends Seminary in the East Village, which is a Quaker school, which is a beautiful, awesome school with like all these celebrity kids and parents and stuff. It was kind of wild. Like Julianne Moore and Uma Thurman, I would see them like drop their kids off. It was kind of cool. Um, Ethan Hawke. Uh, but anyways, I mean, that's just like some New York shit right there. But um, yeah, so I moved to New York and I'm going to City College. And actually my, my classmate is um, Harry uh, Rodriguez, a.k.a. Bauer. Um, of Harlem Shake, of Harlem ah. Shake fame, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and he and I are just like joking around in the back of class, we're having a good time. We're like in these really dry sonic, you know, we're just talking about sine waves all day long and like this super annoying sort of musical structure. Like I just I hated it, but it was you know it got me to New York, and I'm there, and I'm like, and I'm working as well, so it's all like kind of, kind kind of like you know. It feels justified. Um, but, you know, like Harry, we're just going home at night and we're and we're I'm still sober, so I'm not really going out. So my Friday, a good a good Friday night for me is eight hours making music. You know, I'm psyched to just go home and make like an entire tune in a night. And I'm doing that like every night. I'm just making so much more music in 2006, 2007. And I'm starting to reach out to people. And I loved box cutter in the beginning. I love, I still love Barry. We talk all the time and I think you did too. I mean, you put out like maybe his first or some of his first records. You obviously heard the magic in his music. Yeah. We definitely put out his first record. I mean, the yeah. dude was like, He's yeah, amazing. I mean, I always thought he was so underrated, but, um, I don't know, but, uh, yeah, he's just really just beautiful music. And, um, he would give me, he and another producer named Datachi. Do you know Datachi? Nope kind of like a break core guy he was on planet mew oh, oh maybe um, i do actually yeah but uh yeah i just was lucky these two folks would like answer questions and like give me encouragement like it was really you know oh this is also my space right so like you can reach people yeah yeah so this is that this is this is huge i can like hit up people um and i'm doing that a lot <laughs> and i'm hearing back from some folks and I make, so I'm making this like break chord, this like fast, whatever stuff. And Barry Boxcutter says to me, Hey, Hey buddy, why don't you slow it down a little bit there? Why don't you try doing something at like 130 BPM, not 180. And I'm like, okay, cool. And he's like, listen to this, listen to the burial stuff. Listen to, listen to LB, listen to ghost, listen to, you know, MJ, listen to all these other people. And I'm like, Oh, this is so this is intricate drum programming, but it's got swagger and it's slick and it's like sexy. And I was like, okay, I want to do this. I want to really work on this. Yep. And then it's like, 
make a garage track every night, you know, <laughs> and like within a year get to the demos that become my first album on Planet Mew, you know, right? Um, which is like not very straightforward two step, but it's like it's got that shuffly, shuffly thing, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So, how so that's did sort of you, how I get to that. So how did you link up with Mike, um, Planet Mew? Was it just, was it again, just like <laughs> hustling your way through? Like, tell me, tell me about that. <laughs> yeah, it kind of was. It was sending demos and he had on the Planet Mew website, there was a, um, there was a forums. They had these great forums where you could like put music up and like you would chat. And, and the artists that were on Planet Mew had their, their handles were like highlighted. So sometimes they would like, I would put a song up in like, uh, Remember a Milanese, Milanese, yep. whatever his name is. Milanese, I don't know if yeah. Yeah, he would like, he'd be like, oh, this is cool. You should try this or whatever. You just get good feedback there. And sometimes Mike would even chime in. And uh, there was an, an actual physical mailing address too on the website. And I sent Mike a CD with like 50 tracks. <laughs> right. <early on. laughs> and they're all, I joke with him. I was like, that is his extortion material right there because it's all such trash <laughs> you know none of that ever came out it was it was the i wanted to be on mew because i really liked venetian snares and i liked his like his stuff and i wanted to be like a break core kind of guy at first um but um then as i start making and and, and you know no acknowledgement of receiving that cd because i'm sure mike was getting physical demos all the time back then but when i started making more slowed down two-steppy stuff including the first track on Love is a Liability, which was called Human Meadow. When I make that track and I send it to Mike in a You Send It link, which I don't think You Send It is even around anymore, he downloaded it. I could see that he downloaded it and he got right back and he was like, hey, this is actually pretty good. I want to release this. <laughs> um, I'm skipping ahead. I mean, that's like the 50th You Send It link I'd sent him. I'm right. just <laughs> hustling my way into Mike's <laughs> life. And he's he's talked about it too, and it's kind of embarrassing. He did like an interview for like the twenty years of Planet Mew, and someone like brought up my name, and he was like, "Drew was very persistent." <laughs> <laughs> and if that's my legacy, then so be it. But um, I think Mike, you know, throughout the years, if you look at the albums and stuff I did with Mike, like I think they're I I think of them so fondly. The exper- the experience of his guiding hand with the A and R, going back and forth being very generous with his time and like telling me sort of, you know, some tips here and there, but mostly just like, like Mike's a genius. I love his music so much. So when he's giving me his stamp of approval, I'm just feeling so good about it. And it's like, kind of like back to that Kanye thing. It's like, it's, it's amazing as producers when we get just like an ounce of, of approval or like, uh, um, of a hey keep going with this type of attitude it's like it can be everything to us yeah yeah, absolutely if i listen to a demo for blueberry that's the thing i want to tell people i'll just be like even if it's not for me i'll just be like hey i can hear i was like i'll just be like keep going don't stop definitely don't stop and i think people like hearing that i definitely liked hearing that yeah absolutely so Um, we've actually talked about mike and his a&r process on the show before and i never actually met him uh i think i've I think I think I've conversed over email with him back in the day, but um, I've never been. Uh, well, I've never released on Planet Mew. I've never been um, exposed to the process. I talked with uh, with Machine Drum about this, and <laughs> he said, uh, um, "Well, he, he kind of confirmed what I'd heard from elsewhere, which is that it's very much a hands-on process releasing on on Planet Mew." So tell me about your experience with that side of it. 
Well, it's funny because, you know, on all the albums on Planet Mew, there's usually these little descriptions. And on some of them, every once in a while, it'll be like, and I think Mike wrote them all. He'll be like, um, this demo came fully formed and we released it as is. So some folks were at that level in Mike's ear to like a record arrived and he just released it as it was. That was never the case with any of my stuff. It was always lots and lots of tunes. Let's build the album. And Mike would burn CDs, drive around his car listening to it, come back with a new track order. We'd swap something out. And there was a lot of trust from me towards him. Um, uh, I don't know what Travis's experience was. I'm sure it was something similar to that. I actually made the mm. intro for rooms I sent, I introed Travis, Travis sent me rooms and I, and I was like, dude, and then I introed him to, to, to Mike and then the rest is history there. So I'm really psyched. I played right. like the smallest part in introducing them because that album was huge for Travis. I mean, I had nothing to do with the, the, the way the album came out. Just, just happy to introduce them there. Um, and that was cool though. That, that's a good, that's a good example of how like kind of close knit it all was back then. But, um, yeah, Mike, Mike was on it and also brutally dry. And awkward as hell. <laughs> and so was I. So like when Mike would call me in the beginning, we would have these phone calls with like these moments of silence. And then we'd both be like, oh, so- sorry, <laughs> at the same time. Like it was just like just two awkward homebody dudes. And now I got to say, he figured it out. I think having kids and his wife and just life like was softer on him. And he's become like a, a re- he's so funny. He's so dry, but like he won't. If you miss a joke, he's not going to go back and be like, hey, you missed my joke. <laughs> right. Like, you just got to, like, listen to what he's saying. He's like, it is brilliant. But and he's not awkward at all anymore. Like, we have great we can FaceTime now and and just like shoot the shit. Um, it's really cool. Um, he actually came pretty close to releasing a nurse to my patients and helped me with some of the track right. listing stuff. Okay. Um, and ultimately, he said that he didn't think Planet Mew could afford the album because he wanted me to get good press and make music videos and all that. And I said, all right, fine, whatever. Um, and I'm and I'm grateful that I ended up doing it on my own because it's pretty. It's always pretty cool when you get to do that. Yeah, yeah, totally. In fact, let me let me just ask you about that then quickly. As soon as you mentioned it, um, like it's it's very different when you're responsible for the whole thing, and it's your art. And this is something we've talked about on the show before. The difference, um, so kind of psychological difference between being involved with a label and having kind of supervision and having input to just being, you know, flying solo, even if you do have partners. So how have you found that? I mean, what what was the first album? This isn't the first one you've done yourself, is it? I'm I'm fairly sure. No. Yeah. Heaven is for quitters. My last album was my first full length one. Yeah. Um, And I was just, I was just talking about this in another interview where it's like, when you go fully independent, you do you are the first middle and last line of like approval on everything you yeah. know so it is like this like to me it's like this this ultimate pure expression from an artist in a lot of ways because you're you're writing so much on it you're investing in it on your own your own money and all this stuff um but what's funny about it is the way it's received is that i do think that there is folks in the industry like radio and press that when they see an artist so like if I come off the back of doing albums on Ninja Tune and then doing albums on my own, it can be perceived of, oh, these didn't make the cut. You know what I mean? These aren't as good as those albums. And then and then you don't get the same support. And to me, it's like, yo, I'm now independent. Yo, play my record on the radio. 
play it every week. Like I need it now more than ever. Like that's when you should be supporting folks. But there's this whole other backdoor thing. It's not necessarily payola, but you know, the radio is going to play anything that comes out on Ninja Tune because they also want to get that Bonobo track or whatever that comes out. You know, like there's a whole thing happening there. I'm sure they'd argue differently, yeah, but like I, I don't mean, even want to have that uh, argument because I, I don't believe them. But no, I mean you're you're totally right, and like there is even with uh, well, there's a lot of cynicism about about the, the influence of major labels, right? Yeah, but it absolutely exists with big indies as well. Like it completely does in in the way you've just described percent. it. Like particularly, yeah. it's so evident on radio in particular, and also with playlisting on. The, the DSPs, which oh, is the kind of more recent version. Um, and it's baffling, to be honest. I don't quite understand it other than just the kind of laziness on behalf of the um, whoever is, you know, picking the radio playlist or whatever, just kind of defaulting to a trusted brand, essentially, which is so lame bro for a better term. this keeps you know me I mean? it keeps it's me like, up ugh. at night thinking about this stuff man so like this album of mine is arguably my biggest project as far as collaborations and all this i got zero spotify editorial playlisting on this album not a single track got playlisted yeah. and i'm like all right i don't know what to do I, I brought you a tune with paul banks and with joe goddard and all these things and all these people that have like you know huge followers and whatnot and you're not playlisting a single one and we pitched the hell out of it, you know, and I'm hitting up people on the side and my and, and my distro's like, ah, yeah, we don't know. But like, you know, things can get playlisted later. And it's just like, yeah, it's so weird. You just want one song to get playlisted hard so that people will discover it and then go to the album, you know, and I didn't get that yet. Mm. Yeah, it's extremely frustrating. Yeah. And like I said, baffling. Yeah. Um. So... You mentioned before that you were previously involved with someone management at K7, is that right? And then you talked about releasing on Ninja Tune. So tell me, and then, so we're, I mean, we're starting from Planet Mew. So what, what is your, for people who are not aware, what, what has your kind of journey with that side of stuff been, like being involved with these kind of other uh, industry stakeholders, to use an yeah. uncomfortable term? Well, I'll tell you what, and I tell this to, to young artists all the time, is that there's a, there's always a better chance of something happening when an A&R approaches you than you cold calling someone. You know what I mean? So for me to get on Planet Mew, it took like a year of sending a billion demos and hassling Mike, and then it worked. <laughs> With Ninja Tune, there was a guy there doing A&R named Dean Bryce, aka Photo Machine, aka the guy that started Technicolor over there and now runs his own label called Don't Sleep. Dean hits up my, my, uh, my agent, Naomi, at now at earth but was back at elastic artists i'm sure you know naomi palmer um she uh she she was like hey sweetheart you know love uh beautiful british woman coming into london she's like get lunch get 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 dinner with my friend dean he wants to meet you he, he's an a&r ninja tune okay yeah hell yeah dean takes me out to to dinner and he's like bro i love your music i love it he's citing all these tracks of mine he's like really like into it i'm like dude this dude loves my music i'll talk to you all day <laughs> And he's like, he's like, do you want to do an EP for Ninja Tune? And this was also at a time where Ninja was releasing EPs from a lot of Planet Mew artists. And there was a, there was a real, right. yo, I don't know that people know this, but at one point, Mike Paradinas was A&Ring for Ninja Tune. Right. Like okay. straight, like not, not, not in the sense of that his artists were getting stolen to go to Ninja. He actually was for like a while being, you know, on the team to bring art. He would bring Formally, artists to yeah. Ninja Tune. 
formally. Yeah. yeah. Just for like a minute, for like a year, I think he was doing that. In any event, I I do an EP for Ninja Tune and it goes down well. And then on my next trip into London, I go into the Ninja Tune offices to meet people and I meet the head of it, the head of this, the head of that, the A&R here, the press person, da, 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 they're really sweet. And I say, hey, folks, I'm not going to lie. I'd like to do some albums with you, <laughs> you know? Um, kind of like that Ben Affleck character in Goodwill Hunting. I walk in and I'm just like, all right, here's what we're going to do. <laughs> <laughs> just like moving and shaking. Um, I don't know. I think they got a kick out of me. But um, yeah, it kind of moved pretty quick. And, and they were like, and they actually said at one point, they're like, oh, another artist we're going to take from Planet Mew. We feel kind of bad. And I was like, don't feel bad about that. It's fine. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah, and I and I signed the biggest contract of my life, and it was like a three album deal and publishing options for three and all this, and I got to do two albums and two publishing rounds as well, and it was like definitely by far the most money I ever got paid for records, and for yeah. a couple of years there, it was just like, whoa, this is dope. Like between that and touring and this and that, I don't mind saying this, I had one six figure year in music back in like 2013, and I just yeah. was like. Oh, I got this licked. This is easy. This is how it's going to always be. <laughs> um, you know, I toured my ass off, went all over the world like multiple times. Um, and and yeah, and like Ninja Tune was cool, you know. It wasn't my first choice of a major indie, but um but yeah, it worked. I also what was would never your very first choice good been, actually. At Warp. Yeah. Yeah, Stephen yeah. Christian, the head A&R at Warp used to take me out to lunch in new york and say drew you're one of like 10 people i'm listening to in the world and i'd be like dope i was like i was like i was like let's do it let's do it and he's like well i can't do anything this year and i'd be like i don't care i would always be like i'll wait five years like what do you want like it just never materialized Uh and at one point at lunch i said hey man ninja tune just dropped this contract on me what do you think of it and he said you should sign that drew he was like you should definitely sign that and then i brought it to my friend chris chen who was vp of xl who was saying the same thing. He was like, Drew, you should sign this contract, but put it in there that you can still work with XL. So I go back to Ninja Tune and I'm like, I'm like, hey, can I do singles with XL? And they're like, of course, that would only help everything. I never end right. up doing anything on XL. So like there's the bigger indies are like dangling this carrot in this way that's like ultimately kind of annoying, but also also, you know, fueling my fire as well. Um and nothing ever materializes with those other labels. But um, but I was like, all right, cool. I'm going to do this Ninja Tune thing. And like Mike Mike didn't, you know, Mike was like, are you going to go there? And I was like, yeah, I got to do it, man. He's like, all right. He, he got it too. He's, you know, he's been on labels. He was on Virgin yeah. and on Warp and on a whole bunch of labels, Clear or whatever they're called, you know. Um, Some people warned me about it. Some people said, don't go there. I don't know. A lot of people said, go for it. And I went I mean, and I think when you had, had that a good so- when you have that sort of opportunity, you got to take it, right? Dude, I mean, like, they put me in front of... So- like, you get on a label like Ninja Tune, your record is getting worked in every single territory. Yeah. Like, every territory. Now I'm touring in, like, second and third cities and countries. You know, I'm all over the place. And yeah. uh, and so I owe so much to that. Ultimately, I would butt heads with some A&Rs there and some people and kind of left a little bit in flames with that label. But um, I've now since there's there's no one there I can't talk to now or sit down and have coffee with and it would be totally fine. But yeah. um, and I wouldn't take it back. I'm so glad I, I had my time there. But um, and yeah, okay, trip, so man. tell me about managers 
because this is something we've mm. discussed a little bit on the show, but not too much. I haven't had a manager, a, a uh, like a specific manager guest on yet, and I'm I'm interested to do so. I, I've got a couple of ideas of who I might have on, but uh, the, like the, the the concept of the artist manager is um well, it's one of these things which uh, divides opinion, right? And probably because it's just entirely subjective, and a, there are many many bad managers out there right yeah yeah i mean i think there's a couple reasons to get a manager you know if you have that mile long dj list and you're also running a label and doing a bunch of stuff it's good to have someone help you juggle all that although you can then make an argument that you just need a virtual assistant but to me with a manager it was always like are you going to really like bring in more work it's like yeah i'm going to give you 15 percent or 20 percent or whatever of everything if like you're bringing in at least more of that you know and work and like yeah of course we don't get into this to make money but like if you want an artist to like put out good records and you want them to devote their life to it they've got to make a living doing this that's the funny thing that people don't really understand you know i don't need to be a millionaire but i've got to pay my bills you know and i now have a kid you know etc etc we all know this um uh and yeah my first manager uh uh, was Dean actually who, who brought me on to Ninja and uh, you know it was a bit in-house so you could make an argument that that's like kind of um, conflict of interest a little bit but I'll tell you this Dean I would take a bullet for it Dean has fucked with me since day one we keep in touch he's family we help each other out like without needing to get anything in return all the time so that ended up being amazing although I think I was maybe his first client in in his short stint in management so you know i was i was new he was a bit new as well to that so ultimately once i was brought into ninja he was psyched that he he got to sign me there i left working with him and started working with a manager in new york and that was all gravy and it was this guy named brian long who was managing uh chick 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 that band on warp uh jose gonzalez and also running Knitting Factory Records and like the Felicuti sort of family archives, which was amazing. And he was in New York, so I could go see this guy. I could walk 10 minutes down and we'd go have lunch. And he was probably the best business manager I've ever had. That dude brought in money and understood all this stuff. Creatively, we didn't get along so well. And ultimately, they kind of like we went part, we parted ways. But he, uh, he really helped. I think my biggest record that I've done album wise was hard courage, which was my first, uh, Ninja tune album as definitely as far as sales goes and, and whatnot, that was like by far the biggest one. And I think he really was good. He was on it with the label, making sure they kept their end of the bargain up for all the money they promised for, for promotion and all that stuff. And, and just had great ideas about, you know, merch and all that type of stuff. You know, this is 10 years ago. So, you know, we're selling vinyl, we're selling CDs, we're doing T-shirts, we're doing other physical things that aren't as popular now, so to speak. But, um, Brian, yeah, but Brian was cool. But then ultimately, I, I, I like didn't, I, yeah, I just didn't get along with him creatively. So I went my own route. And then when I go my own route, I come out with an album like In the Wild, which is like a really stoned, scatterbrain, fun, but like weird listen which ultimately was the nail on the coffin with my Ninja Tune deal because it didn't do well, but was but also at the album release party, the head A&R comes up to me and he was like, Drew, this is my favorite record we've put out in like years. And I have no reason not to believe him. 
I think he loved it, but it really just didn't do well. And like they've sunk in money. So I think it's, they've got to look at it as a business thing and, and maybe yeah, we're not getting along about some things. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, I always, sometimes I go, well, why am I not a ninja tune? And this artist got to stick around and like, it could just be financial. Who knows? Or maybe they just like them and that artist isn't an asshole like I was. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's probably financial, I think. Yeah, to be quite I think honest. so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because people are labels will put up with 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 difficult artists if they're making a lot of money. That's <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Because um, there's a lot of people out there like that. Um, but uh, yeah, those were those were interesting times, man. I was like going to London about five times a year and like it was just it was cool. It was great. Um, my my panic attacks from touring were just around the corner at this point. So like my days were getting numbered with all my traveling by 2015 after in the wild comes out, I'm showing up to an airport and I'm having a real hard time getting on the plane. Really? And yeah. And I'm, and I'm calling my agent just being like, dude, I can't do this. I'm sorry. I'm going home and I'm going home and my agents get it. And then, you know, what's funny. This is before mental health was a discussion. So 20, you know, seven years ago, people aren't being like mental health. Oh, we've got to do this. I'm just literally (laughs) having panic attacks touring and people are just like, what's wrong with this kid? Why can't he go? I'm touring completely sober. I'm not fucked up. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm at the show. I'm, I'm, I'm back in the hotel right away. I'm FaceTiming my girlfriend. I'm a mess. I just want to come home. I'm mm. I'm this introverted kid, right, from New Haven making electronic music in his bedroom and I'm dropped in the deep end touring let around me, the world. I'm it's too much. Let me yeah. ask you, um how did that build up because I'm was it a problem from day 1 or or was it uh was it something which sort of developed over time and then became something that was unmanageable? Like was there a point at which you were really enjoying touring? My my ability to deal with the problems of touring became thinner and thinner. In the beginning of tour, I would go do tours. I'd come home at a loss with like a $1,000 cell phone bill. So like it wasn't working financially in the beginning, you know, but it was new and dope and fun and like, and, and like was, was, was awesome. As I get older, I'm just, I'm just lonely. Like I'm deeply lonely yeah. on the road. I'm missing friends and family's birthdays and Thanksgiving and all sorts of stuff. It's just like, it's not working out. I'm really just lonely and not built for that thing. And then compound that with the subtle trauma of red-eyeing to, let's just say Amsterdam, playing a gig on no sleep, clearing the floor because I'm not that good of a DJ, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And then getting back in my hotel room being like, I just flew here. I don't feel good. I like didn't do well. Like that just builds up. And it's yeah. just like, why am I doing this? This is not my passion. This is not yeah. what I want to do. It's it's the way I'm making money. So it's like, I, I felt like I had to do it. But yeah, it just got tougher and tougher until I was like, that's it. I'm done. You know, 2015, I stop. And then I just tell me, I said, I'm not doing anything for a couple months. And then it just became real slow to build up even the courage to go do gigs. By the time Heaven is for Quitters comes out in 2016, my agent's like, why don't we do some ticketed events? Like, what if you flew in, Drew, a day early, you got some rest, you played at like 10 p.m. to like a ticketed show. You're home, you're, you're back in the hotel by midnight. It's not crazy. We tried yeah. that on that tour and that was great. But I just was like, I don't know. My interests were waning with the traveling part. And I started, right. um, and then I started like, doing way more remixes and production work and also 
um, a little bit of consulting for a couple companies and I'm like building, you know, uh, a livelihood in these other ways so I could start to phase out the production. I'm living in a, in a pretty cheap one bedroom with my girlfriend. She's got an excellent job. So I'm like totally comfortable financially. I'm like, I don't need to travel as much anymore. You know, I don't know that folks realize that there are other ways to do it. Um, but I think, I mean, yeah, it's, it's really tricky. I mean, like, I know from my experience that if once you've got in really deep, particularly in the DJ circuit, because that really is a good way of making money. Yeah. Like to, to step back from that is, I mean, you've got to plan that shit out. You know, it's like, if you've got, I mean, particularly if you've got any serious, like, you know, financial obligations, like it's a tricky thing to do. And I think, I mean, I was lucky because like the, before the pandemic, I took most of 2019 off. And so then when it all hit, like I was sort of already kind of used for like financially used to the, the situation. But I know, you know, so many, so many DJs who have done the circuit for so many years and I just have just you know, got lives adjusted to that level of income mm-hmm. who then had the the kind of rug pulled out from under them in 2020. And like from a mental health perspective, I mean, that was the reason why I took 2019 off basically. Like it just got to the point where I just couldn't face it anymore. You know, I just couldn't, you know, I'd already, I'd quit drinking at shows a couple of years prior to that, which mm-hmm. made a big difference. But it was just, I mean, it's a very similar experience to what you've just described. It's just like, you're just, it's just, you just feel isolated on the road Yeah. after a while. I mean, I definitely enjoyed it for a long time and, you know, did the lifestyle pretty hard. But yeah. after a certain amount of time, yeah, you just feel, yeah, I mean, there's no other way of putting it other than you just feel, you just feel lonely, you know? Absolutely. Basically. No, to a T, man. I'm so glad you figured that out and got and got that under control before it became, you know, too bad. Yeah, well, I'm not sure if I completely <laughs> did. I mean, I mean, I ended up like dealing with it. Yeah, I mean, that's that's yeah. true. But I mean, I think lots of people struggle with that. And I think the, the, the problem is that the way the economics of the business are, like, it's very difficult to make a living, as you said, and artists do have to make a living. It's it's difficult to do it without some kind of pretty serious commitment to playing shows, you know? Yeah. And that's just the way it is, basically. And like it's it's tough. It really is tough. It's not an easy like it's not an easy life at all. Even when you're doing well, it's not easy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like it's great it's great earning good money, but I mean yeah, well, and, it's not a easy life gone. And we know those people that are making like 10, 15, 20 grand a show. Like that are just like crushing it every weekend, just crushing it. Like and I I'm just full full uh full transparency. I never got even close to that. Like I'm not saying that. I'm just saying like so if there was a price, you know, there was a price for a while where if I got it, I would definitely go do it cuz I was like I can't turn that down. I have to do it. Um it wasn't that much again, but like, uh, and so that can also breed into a little bit of the jealousy stuff too. You're like, well, why is this person just making like half a million dollars a year? In oh yeah. hundred percent. Like, can I yeah. just, can I just get a chunk of that? Like, yo, hook it up. And then it's <laughs> like, and they're all just like, so yeah, there was like a group of producers that I came up with that I felt like as I stray into other forms of music and I'm not on the road as much, it doesn't make as much sense for me to be 
you know, spoken in the same sentence or to be doing the same radio show together or to be touring together on the same level. And I watch them go one direction. I go another direction. And it's just like, it's just the facts of life. It's just how it shakes out, you know, but they're also, it, it, it'd be a mistake to assume that someone, as you said, who's even doing very well is having the time of their life. <laughs> like they've got their own demons. Yeah. I mean, everyone does. There's no, it's no way around that at all. Yeah. Um, but like, so, you know, you just interviewed Ellen, Ellen Alien, right? Yep. And like, wow, what, she I mean, been she's been going for like 30 years, right? And, and just <laughs> crushing it, dude. She's like my spirit animal. She's like got the same energy every, it's, it's incredible. Like, is she just yeah. built differently? She's like a robot. Like, I don't know how. Some people can just do it. I mean, Sven Veith is a similar sort of example. Like some people just are just able to they just I guess I guess it just makes sense mentally for some people they can just you know just engage with it on that kind of level yeah I mean I am not one of those people but like the first time I the first time I played shows with Sven was extremely eye-opening because he just has this I don't know this kind of charisma which just kept like follows him around like people really like he has this kind of, I don't know, it's this, I guess, kind of star quality. But And people have that, like, on stage, but he has that, like, everywhere, right? <laughs> yeah. And so he's like this, and people call him, like, Papa Sven for, for a reason, right? Because he's just, he just exudes this kind of, I don't know, it's just the experience of it, I guess. But, like, you know, I get the impression that, you know, this has just been something that he's been doing. I mean, he's been going since the mid-80s, right? right? right. So, like, Dude, I how, mean, how- really got to be deep. And how cool is it though, just the people that we meet along this road, like you find yourself in crazy situations, like, like, uh, like in a transport vehicle with like, you know, Villalobos to a, to a festival, (laughs) you know, like me in the backseat, you know, I'm getting paid 500 pounds to play a festival. And then he's like up front, you know, (laughs) and then watching him check in at a hotel and he's like, just like floating around the lobby, like just stuff like that is so trippy, man. And you know, I love that stuff though. Like I cherish all those memories of being around like these legends that are just like larger than life and are really weird people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because you do have to be weird. You do. To, to, yeah. Like to be, to be that sort of DJ, like that normal people don't do that yeah, yeah, yeah. at all. Like <laughs> That's a good point, man. Normal people don't do what we do, you know? And so maybe that I realize that I just want to be home more or you taking your time off, we realize that there is there is a lot of normalcy that we crave. Oh, 100%. That's what I wanted. When I when I took my year off in 2019, I was just like, I just want a normal life for a bit. I just want to experience yeah. normal shit. Like I want to I want to have num- a number of weekends in a row where it's Friday night and yeah. it's like it's chilling night, you know? It's not fucking go to the airport. Yeah. And all that shit. So just Going going back to um, the records, are you playing shows to promote this record? I mean, are you playing any of the music live? That's that's actually something which I wanted to ask you. Like, I mean, yeah. are you going to play guitar on a stage? Yeah, yeah right. So uh, the short answer is no, not for the foreseeable. But I do have this idea that I don't want to give away too much of that I'm going to do this spring, which would be making a live performance to put out there in some way. And I am going to, my goal will be to break the fourth wall and create a piece of art that is like a standalone thing you can watch. That's an experience of somewhere between a live show and a confessional. 
And the only problem is it's going to cost a lot of money. So I'm just trying to figure that out, but I need to get like a director and like a whole team together to do it. I want to get some like NYU jazz students, some real players, some kids that can just like jam and rehearse the album and play it. And yeah, we're going to do something really dope. It's probably going to take a while to come out, but that'll be it. Like I am. So I now consult for like an app and a company and I have, I did Patreon got me through a lot of the pandemic. I had all these one-on-one, um, students you know so i really built out like an infrastructure outside of the idea of touring um and i have another small business i run with my girlfriend that does really well and she does really well and so like i just kind of hit the jackpot with some trial and error over the over the years of figuring it out um but yeah man of course i'd love to be on stage like in a big jacket (laughs) like uh like uh stop making sense like uh talking head style david byrne and just like do something crazy i'd love to do that um but I also don't want to start like I don't want to go play some trash bar and start a small oh, tour and then do a support it, yeah. tour and then do a this. I I don't want to do that whole thing. I'm going to create my own thing. I'm going to invite all my friends into a small theater and like make a concert. <laughs> I'm going to pretend like I'm already there. The headline. <laughs> yeah, that's a better way of doing it. I think I can't imagine anything worse now than trying to well going around the club circuit playing like with a band that just brings me out in um like just terror <laughs> to be honest. yeah also dude i literally had a baby uh 10 days ago and i don't want to miss a single day of her life right now so i'm not going anywhere yeah okay well that's 100 percent. you know understandable okay um this has been great i've got a couple more questions before we go okay so going back to kanye and we talked about his well we alluded to his crazy <laughs> turn i wanted to ask you about anti-semitism in the industry and sort of the way it fits into the conversation yeah. about discrimination generally. Because, I mean, you've been vocal about this. I've certainly you know, seen you tweeting about it. And, you know, this is obviously something which, yeah. which you care about. So sure. d- just give me, your, give me your thoughts yeah. on, on what I've just said. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And, well, that one important thing to understand about it is that, like, I'm no representative of the entire Jewish community. I'm just, like, myself, you know, and, and a lot of other people that probably had a similar upbringing to me, American Jews who have zero allegiance to Israel or any sort of, you know, we have some ideas about that. And we and we we all understand the idea of, like, never again and needing a safe space and all these things. But we understand that there's probably other better ways to go about doing that. Um, uh, I... Uh, yeah, uh, there's like a bunch of good books. You know, Jews Don't Count by David Badil is a really good, interesting look at sort of one aspect of how uh, Jews get it from like everyone across the entire spectrum. Um, it's like, it's so impossibly deep, the whole thing, man, that it's like, <laughs> you know, John Stewart also, I, I would I would, uh, I would, would yield my time to him as well and his recent, um, what he just said on like the Tonight Show the other night, which is just like, yes, you know, I, uh, I got together with the other Jews on the committees and we decided that we uh, needed to relinquish some of the control. It's like just the, some of the ideas are so out there and so insane <laughs> um, that I do feel like a frog slowly being boiled in water. And it's like you realize, oh, I'm now boiling and I didn't realize we got here. Um, I mean, but you're, I also, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Sorry, if I can just interrupt you there. You're yeah. absolutely right that they're insane, but they're also extremely enduring. Like the history of like Western yeah. society is by and large the history of like oppressing the Jewish community, right? And actually quite often mur- yeah. murdering the Jewish, Jewish community. So these yeah. things are, yeah. 
I feel like well, the, the way I feel about it is that this is something which is so endemic in in Western culture that it is almost overlooked because of that fact. Is is that fair? Dude, totally, a hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, and like perception is so so um, obtuse that like a lot of people have different ideas about about Jews and also just a lack of knowledge on the actual culture and religion and the ethnicity and all these different like actual things about it. Um, you know, I got to say though, like, like, okay, Kanye. Yeah. He's saying some stupid shit, but I also think he is like so wrapped up in a world where he needs to get some, like stay in the news cycle that he'll say whatever. Listen, if he in fact has had some awful deals with some Jewish agents and, and managers and record label owners, then he's got a problem with those people and fuck those people. Like, yeah, we should kick those. We should, we should change the music industry. I also know that it's not only Jews that are doing that. You know what I mean? I mean, there's like a very, like I can just, and one side of my brain, I'd be like, yeah, he's had some bad experiences with some dudes. So he sees it all as that way. Fine. But name those people. It's not against the Jewish people. It's, it's fucking, you know, Bob, the VP of whatever or whatever. Um, Kyrie, man, trying to teach an adult a lesson. You can't play basketball to me. That's just like, that's not going to work. Like, that's so ridiculous. I hate that so much. It's so cringy. It, it's only going to come back as well as more backlash towards Jews, you know? And it's like, that's ridiculous. I also don't even care about educating him. Just let the guy think whatever he wants. Like, I mean, it's not like, I don't think, I don't, I have more faith, I guess, in humanity that they're not going to be swayed by someone like the, that, that's saying something like tweeting a link to a movie or or saying they're going to go deathcon 3 on Jews or whatever. I think people that already think things are going to think it more reinforced and people that don't think it are going to think this person's being a jackass. I guess I just have more faith in people than maybe I should, but um I don't I don't feel misrepresented, I don't feel misunderstood, I don't crave any sort of acknowledgement for my struggle or anything like that. I think I've had a good I was dealt a good hand in life as far as like loving, healthy family, you know, um, I don't, I think that I have also definitely, uh, you know, benefited from, from, from white privilege. Although the white thing is so funny because I always just assumed I was white. Cause you know, look in a fucking mirror, I look pretty white. <laughs> um, but like the David Badil has this interesting take where like, we're kind of Schrodinger's white. It's like, it depends on who you ask. It's like, I'm white, but if you ask a white supremacist, I'm not white. I'm Jewish. You know what I mean? I am not white. I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, you know, so no fucking it's just way, a funny right? one. Yeah. Depends on who uh-huh. you ask. Um, look, we're not, I don't think we're going to have another Holocaust in my lifetime. I can't see that happening, but, uh, I don't know. Jackasses will be jackasses. You know, I mean, the internet is so much information. I can go online and I can Google. There was a point like last year where I was just searching for anti-Semitism on Twitter. I was seeking it out to get pumped up and to get pissed off about it. And it's like, yeah, I'm going to find it if I look for it. But then like, I've also got, yeah, I mean, you have to look too hard. Obviously. Yeah. I've got friends of mine, white friends, black friends, you know, Jewish friends, Muslim friends, all just being like, Drew, you know, tune that shit out. We love you, bro. Like, there's so many there's so many more good people. I don't know. I mean, 
It's a funny sure, one. Sure, it is. It is. Um, I appreciate you asking, though. It's like it's this thing I want to. T- I want to talk about it, and then as I start talking about it, I realize how like obtuse it is that I'm just like I don't even know how to scratch the surface. <laughs> well, I mean, the reason I brought it up is because it does strike me as something which is in in the kind of broader conversation in music about diversity and about discrimination, which has been such a big thing mm. in the last few years. Like it's just sort of conspicuous by its absence, and you know, a lot, a, there are a lot of people who kind of define their like activism or their kind of like you know the, the way they kind of explain to themselves that what kind of justify to themselves their like stance is around the Israel thing. And I've you know I had Yotam Avni on the show yeah. to talk about that in particular, um, and that was an interesting episode actually. Uh, and because mm-hmm. him you know, coming from a the perspective of a kind of liberal inhabitant of Tel Aviv and how it is for yeah. him coming to, you know, Western Europe in particular, he kind of, he pinpointed much more than, than the States actually. But you know, just the degree to which people, like I said, sort of justify and define their supposedly anti-discriminatory stance by identifying with this um with this cause which is extremely complicated right like as you said like you know, yeah. never again and yeah. like safe space for uh you know uh yeah a, you know yeah. A, a race of people who have been yeah there's like you know two thousand years or more, more five thousand years of discrimination to be talked yeah. about but yeah anyway well, what's frustrating is that it is so complicated and long and deep, and it also involves like other governments and other countries' involvement for like millennia. You know, it's like we got to go back to Egypt. We got to talk about the UK. We got to talk about the entire region. We got to talk about so much. But it's also like the solution should be simple, and that's why it's frustrating. It's like don't kick people out of their homes. Everyone get along. We're all brothers. We're all from the same exact place on the earth. Like the solution sounds simple, but the problem is horrible. I'll tell you this. Here's one thing that I never thought I would say. I like open anti-Semitism because I don't have to guess whether or not someone hates me that way. That is something I never thought I would feel. I appreciate someone being open about their anti-Semitism, specifically from the left progressive democratic side that I am a part of myself, because then I don't wonder if they hate me because I got to a point where I thought everyone hated me and that's paranoia. And that's from spending too much time online. And a lot of that, a lot of that is not real, but yeah, yeah, you get to a point where you're just like, you know, and and a black friend of mine was like, man, Trump, at least, you know, where he stands on things versus like (laughs) Hillary Clinton, you might not have known she could have been a wolf in sheep's clothing. And that's like, you can look at that and be like, oh no, that's not true. She, she's progressive. She's, you know, she's not racist or whatever. But like, I understand that feeling of like, at least with Trump, you knew what you were getting. It's so weird, man. That's one thing I totally get. It's cool though, dude. I got to say, like I've spent the last 10 years of my life with a Spanish Catholic woman and like, I love her traditions. I love the idea of raising a family that's multicultural, you know, with lots of different things going on. And dude, I'm the only like Jewish person that's ever been in her village. Like they don't even understand it. <laughs> right. <laughs> but like, it's all, it's cool, man. It, you know, it's fine. Well, okay. So last thing, I'm just going to ask you the favorite albums one to finish because obviously you're an albums guy so chuck me some some key albums that are important to you maybe maybe uh 
growing up, but also maybe some that feel like they were influential on your recent stuff? Yeah, uh, the one that comes to the top of my mind because it's a newer record was there's this album uh, as a self-titled album by a band called Muzz, M-U-Z-Z, which is a bit of a super group. It was like Paul Banks from Interpol singing. Um, uh, oh, what's the dude's name? The guitarist from Bonnie Light Horseman and the drummer from The Walkman. And they made this beautiful album that just landed early pandemic. And it became part of my like daily ritual of coming to the studio, putting it on as the sun was shining into my studio. I'm drinking my coffee and it just was like gorgeous. That was a big one. So Muzz, you know, the Turning Point albums in like electronic music over the years were like definitely box cutters, one Eric and Glyphic, you know, and uh, Burial's Untrue. Smile, Beach Boys Smile the smile sessions which is like more of a compilation of like a bunch of outtakes and stuff where like you heard like brian wilson's like piano demo to a song before it became the full track like stuff like that like oh my god like incredible and you're right i do have this commitment to this form and now the idea was to get as many singles out as you can before the album comes out and i got a good five or six out i think but like i i don't know i just think that the album is still like really important um, you know, I mean, it's just such a great statement from an artist and I think everyone should make an album. Yeah. It's like, everyone's got a book in them, right? Everyone's got an album in them somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> you think you have a book in you? Would you write? A hundred percent. One of, yeah, I'm, that's something which I am currently struggling with. I'm reading a really interesting memoir at the moment, actually, of a guy called Fitzroy McLean, who is one of the, uh, original members of the SAS in World War Two, bizarrely. And the reason that I, or part of the reason why I wanted to ask the anti-Semitism question actually is that he was at one of the, or actually the last Soviet show trial in 1938. He attended it as a diplomat, a British diplomat. Yeah. And the oppression of like Jews in the Soviet Union didn't come until later on, but like that's what kind of like brought that to mind. But yeah, no, there's not too many good sort of memoirs that I've been tossing up. Well, I tried to get, I tried to persuade Tiger to write one because I think he would write a brilliant memoir. But uh, I don't know. But I've been, I've been throwing around the idea of, of trying to do it. But then you just got to sit down and write it, right? And that's oftentimes the uh, mm. the, the, the big problem, just getting down yeah. and doing it. But it's something that I would. Uh, I could imagine doing maybe at some stage. I think you'd have to treat it just like music, get in and write like, you know, 200 words a day, just trying to start. Yeah. I don't know. Absolutely. You've got to read and you've got to write, basically. Dude, totally. Um, There was more I wanted to say about the anti-Semitism thing too, but now it kind of escapes my mind. Um, Oh man, I don't know what it was. I felt like I had a good point, but... You know, oh, okay. So like the presence of Jews in the entertainment business, like... It's very interesting if you look back at the history of jobs Jews were allowed to have. We were we were we were we were account we were the first accountants because it was the only job we were allowed to have. You handle our money, you organize our money, Jews. All right, we'll do that. Now we're good at that. Why are we good at that? Because we've been doing it for thousands of years. Okay, you now uh like create entertainment. We created vaudeville early early Hollywood you know, early, you know, where Jews are doing stand-up comedy and the Catskills at like Jewish summer camps because it's the only place, because we weren't allowed anywhere else. I went to this pool as a kid growing up that uh, in like the 90s, it was like this pool in town. Jews weren't allowed there till the 80s. 
And in the late 80s, when they were allowed, then my family and all these other families like signed up and started going there. Like we're not that far from these types of things where it's like, so what we could have done there is create our own pool club. And then someone would come along and be like, why did the Jews control this pool club? Because he didn't fucking let us in the other one. You know, so like why are Jews in Hollywood? Because we created it. Right. You know, like we literally sure. made it our business. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and we don't run all the studios, but whatever. But if it's a disproportionate amount, it's because it's literally like our bread and butter. And you know what? You love Steven Spielberg. You love our movies. So like, shut up. Right. <laughs> Make a better comedy than a Mel Brooks movie. I dare you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we're, we're coming at it from our trauma as well. <laughs> no, 100%. 100%. And like I said, you know, this stuff is so deeply ingrained in the culture. Like the people don't notice it. Yeah. I think a lot of the time, you know, people don't un- people don't understand yeah. where their biases come from on this, and it's like thousands. And dude, of years I've signed people. I've signed bad record I've signed bad record deals with labels that don't have a single Jew working at them. <laughs> so right? Yeah, exactly. It's not miss monopoly. miss me with that shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 100%. yeah. Anyway, listen, man, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for doing it. It's been great. Yeah, dude, this was great. Um, this was really fun. I'm sure we went longer than we needed to, but thank you. Yeah, that was Faulty DL, aka Drew Lustman. What a great guy. I really, really enjoyed having that conversation. I said, as I said at the top, it was a personal one for me because he's a mate who I have never had the privilege of sitting down with one on one like this before. So, yeah, what a great guy and what a great episode. I think you'll agree. It was particularly interesting to hear his uh, opinions and the stories of his experiences with Kanye West, who I've been extraordinarily rude about in the past. And I don't know, maybe he's all right. I don't know. I've just, yeah, you know, I kind of react viscerally to people like that sometimes, which is not always fair. It's not always fair to judge someone on their public persona. That's certainly true. And I, God knows I've fallen foul of that in the past, going in the other direction. But anyway whatever okay let's just call it quits i think this week gonna be back next week with another one there's a really good one coming next week in fact i've recorded the next two episodes and they're both great so yeah support the show on patreon patreon.com slash scuba official it really is worth it it's great value and it really really would help us if we had more of those we've got quite a few and there's a really nice community of supporters in the discord hotflushercorners.com slash discord but the more the merrier, absolutely. So um, if you can afford it, then get involved. In fact, I've had a couple of people message me this week saying that our Patreon is the best Patreon that they subscribe to. So that's pretty good praise, I reckon. Anyway, yeah, um, if you can't, leave us a review or a rating. Follow that Spotify playlist. And yeah, I've already said, join us on my Discord, you can do that too. So... I'll see you same time, same place, back here next week for the next episode of the Not A Diving podcast. Thank you. Let's go, 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.